Hannah Brown! Chris McLean, here we are, episode number 38. She says, trying to discreetly look at her notes. <laughs> 38. Let's concentrate and get it done. Do, 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 do. There's a whole song yeah. this week. It wasn't just a rhyme. Yeah, this week I decided to go for a full blown song because branching out. music is my life. How bleeding are you? I'm bleeding good. Thank you very much. Oh, good. Um, melting slightly at the time this is oh. recorded. We're in the midst of a little mini heat wave here in Glasgow town. And let me tell you, this city is not built for heat. Neither are we as a people. We be built to be sturdy and to, to not feel the cold. And I feel like when you're on holiday, it doesn't matter because, I've, I ha- as I have always said, aircon. Aircon makes the biggest difference. Aircon is not something that we partake in so much here. No, because we're always cold. Always cold. And that's how I like it. So this is honestly torture. <laughs> I feel like a pat of butter being left out the fridge. A pat of butter? Yeah. I mean, because I mean, currently looking at my laptop, and my laptop could be lying, but my laptop weather tells me it's 26 degrees. That's at least 16 too many for me. Exactly. And that's unheard of here, so... I'm sure I've told you about the time I was in Paris and it was 40 degrees. How I came out of that alive. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from the gentleman that does not wear shorts or short sleeves. No. And beyond that, I wear skinny <laughs> jeans and hoodies. Exactly. <laughs> so you really wear like a little roast turkey. I was. And I had my, my hair was slightly shorter, but not short because it was always, it's been long mm-hmm. forever. But um, it frizzed so much um i had this big massive helmet of hair for the whole trip it really just i'm not built for this weather i need to move somewhere colder during these summer months cooking literally poached love it so that's fun beyond melting how are we what's been happening beyond melting good what have i done this week i have saw some of our mutual friends this week that was great fun my younger brother has had a belated, I'm not going to say party, because it wasn't like a party, but he had pals round at the weekend, okay. because rules now allow it, basically. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and requested that I and my parents effectively bugger off for the evening mm-hmm. and the next morning. Fair request. So, yes, exactly. So, that was fine. My parents went and stayed at the... Lovely Cathedral House Hotel across the road from the Necropolis. Very on brand. Yes. And I went over to my pal's house and we had like a wee good old fashioned sleepover. And we had we had hot chocolate. We watched the Pixar film Coco because she hadn't seen it before. Cute. It was so good. I took my fluffy socks with me. And do you remember like when you used to have sleepovers when you were young and like you'd all sit and you'd stay up late at night and you'd talk about gossip and nonsense. Mm-hmm. No. We sat up to 1am talking about mortgages. That's how <laughs> sleepovers go when you're 25. <laughs> that is so fun. This is Honestly. the kind of stuff we should have been talking about those kinds of things at our teen sleepovers. So by the time we were 25, we were prepared. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, we'd got all of our gossip out the way early in the early 
that evening and then we're just sitting there and I was like do you know what the issue isn't the deposit it's the paying for it afterwards (laughs) (laughs) and we're sitting defacing mortgages from like 12 to 1 in the morning these are the important things we need to talk about it's true it's true Mm -hmm. it's very true but I just thought oh my god how times have changed when like you'd be sitting talking with people in people in your class and you'd be sitting watching horror films no talking about houses (laughs) well my sleepover experiences when i was younger are very true to the wee bit gothic brand in that we would have (gasps) horror movie nights Mm. so we would get together to have a sleepover specifically to watch horror movies okay what was in your repertoire oh we went through them all because i have a massive horror movie dvd collection back home so does not surprise me i remember we watched the original fog and the fog remake that's one that always sticks with me house of wax we watched (gasps) hostel urban legend i know what you did last summer we did them all we really went through them all because this this was like six years worth of horror movie nights and we would have a sleepover on a friday night quite regularly not all of my friends participated in this there were some friends that we wouldn't do the horror films we would just have a sleepover and then we stopped i think because as we got older sensitivities changed within the group indeed and that seems to happen to a lot of people didn't affect me but that's a that's a conversation for a different day well here you are with maybe a specialist (laughs) well exactly um Um, so so yeah we stopped house of wax so much fun (gasps) what a throwback because that's what i used to watch at at sleepovers as well yeah oh my god i completely forgot about that film yeah (gasps) my are you thinking the original or the remake remake Me the one too. with paris hilton in it for paris some hilton random reason gets a pole through her head what a classic oh what a classic way to go the bit that always traumatized me is there's a bit where the girl wiggles her finger through the grate she's yes. in the sewer oh type my bit God. and then he comes along and snips her finger off with some pliers or secateurs yep yep there was also a bit like when the first guy goes in to like investigate the creepy abandoned town and he's walking up a staircase and the person snips his Achilles. <laughs> oh, it's a classic. It's a classic mode it's of debilitation. Classic. It really is. <laughs> um, well, when oh we have God. our when we have our horror movie night and we watch Urban Legend, mm-hmm. early warning that happens in Urban Legend. Lovely. I'll ju- I'll just be sure to like raise a cushion over my head at that point because, ew. So grim. What exciting and thrilling endeavors has one been up to this week? Oh, well, there's one that is somewhat relevant to my story this week, so I shall save that. Um, Oh, very exciting. Is it the fact you're about to climb a tree tonight? No, no. (laughs) Okay. Although I am very excited (laughs) about doing so. Um, I am going to go ape, which is the treetop adventure. I'm very excited, not sponsored. (laughs) Although... If they are willing to endorse us, I am more than happy. Exactly. We're taking any and all offers. Oh, yes. Hannah will even climb up the tree. <laughs> I would like to see it. <laughs> well, you never know. Stranger <laughs> things have happened. <laughs> but not an awful lot. I have been working a lot, which has been really nice. And mm-hmm. things have begun to get a little bit busier, which is always good. That's lovely. I was meant to be going to Cornwall. As oh, I may yeah. have mentioned on the podcast, I had a recall audition for a show down in Cornwall or a season of shows down in Cornwall and it got cancelled because the director got ill with Covid. 
Uh, hopefully she gets well soon and we it will just be postponed until a later date. Yes. It's secretly a relief because driving down to Cornwall in this heat would have literally yeah. cooked me alive. I would have been like a slow roast chicken. I really would have. Oh my God, tender. you would have been so angry. My body would be falling off the bone. I, don't, I would really, really would not be. have enjoyed it. No, it wouldn't have been fun. No. But yeah, other than that, honestly, nothing. Well, that's lovely. Having cold shivers. Fair. You've, got to, you've got to do it. You've got to do it in this heat. It's not, it's not. My top tip. This is a top tip for anyone out there who's been feeling too hot. They often oh, say, God. if you're cold, to put gloves on or a hat on or shoes on, socks on, because obviously the heat wants to leave your extremities. Escapes, yes. This works two ways, mother truckers. So what you want to do, get yourself a basin, fill it up with some cold water and maybe pop in a couple of ice cubes, stick your feet in that, your whole body cools down. I mean, that really is impressive. So at night, after dinner, I've been sitting with my Uh feet in a basin of cold water and I do not feel hot anymore. Honestly, it works so well. Uh Highly recommend. I put it to you all, try it tonight and you will thank me at a later date. Yeah, well, there you go. Honestly. Thank you very much. I just need to try and source the basin. Oh, no. Well, you could... (laughs) Two very large tumblers. That's true, yeah. I could just sit with, like, my feet in them, like, on point. Yeah, (laughs) just wear them like point shoes. And then when you get up to go walking... Yeah. Cute. Shall we go on in for our question of the week? Question of the week. Right. Right, you tell me when to stop. Oh, stop. The question this week is simply, why did you start the podcast? Oh. Yeah. Well. It's a good question. (laughs) This is a question I suppose we don't have to do one at a time. No. No. Because I don't think we have separate reasons. (laughs) No, I think it's... We share the common interest of things that are darker and gothic, be that mm-hmm. film, literature, true crime, architecture. Did I say that already? Yeah. No, I don't think you did. Then there's film, architecture, <laughs> literature. <laughs> there's really a whole list of reasons why we enjoy the darker things in life. Yeah. I mean, we've both talked about how it's an interest we got from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. See episode one. See episode pilot. one. Pilot? Yeah. Pilot, yeah. We've renamed the episode pilot. one to Pilot. Yeah. So people who listen to it now <laughs> may be pilot. a bit forgiving in that we were fresh, fresh-faced podcasters. Fresh-faced. Yeah. Indeed. We're jaded now. Oh, yes. We are practically geriatric <laughs> podcasters. <laughs> I think it just made sense. It was something we, we spoke about film a lot and spoke about Mm-hmm. I probably spoke a lot about true crime just to anyone who would listen and you're probably yeah. one of the ones who would stick about and um, yep. <laughs> so it just kind of made sense definitely and I think because when we were discussing it because it kind of came out during the latter half of last year before everything spectacularly hit the fan again at the start of this year mm-hmm. um, and we'd often be talking about stuff and we obviously had our little gothic film club as well and we would often joke about it, be like, oh, this would make a really good idea for a podcast. And then we were like, wait. <laughs> yeah, genuinely would be a good what? idea for a podcast. Genuinely would be a good idea. So we just kind of took it. And also because it's an art that's relatively inexpensive to make. 
I, I can't even think of any expense we've had to dish out really. Yeah. I think exactly. you had to buy a microphone. Is that maybe the only I thing? I had to buy a microphone. That was about it. Yeah. Yeah. That um, was it. But um, it's been a worthwhile investment. But yeah, and also I think because we often talk about this on the podcast, but the thing is, like, there's brilliant podcasts out there all about true crime, about spooky stuff, about folklore, about mysteries, literally everything. But we there's very few that are just Scottish centric. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, we be Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> It has totally just kind of formed into an excellent excuse to read stories about our own history and about... There's just so many strange stories. Like, Scotland, because it's... Yeah. It's a strange little place. And so I feel like we have so many strange things that have happened. And then, obviously, it just we just feel, it just feels like such a special little country that has lots of stories worth telling. There was people in Scotland from as far back as like Roman times. Yeah, 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 which yeah, is yeah like, absolutely. <laughs> it's way, way back at the start, effectively, of everything, um, or what is now modern civilization, and it's just it, there's just so much ground to cover. But I think it's because we're also being a Celtic country. There's so much like folklore and supernatural and lots of like creatures and stuff as well it's not just like it's got such a rich sort of diverse history when it comes to um things that are gothic yeah so it kind of just came out of that that we and it gave us an excuse to chat about it for two hours a week yeah and it's (laughs) it's been a kind of rewarding in ways that i necessarily i didn't necessarily anticipate before we started in that we've we're having interactions with friends that we would speak to anyway, but we're talking about stuff that mm-hmm. we haven't all necessarily spoken about previously. I mean, I know Jen Lynns is an example of someone who I've spoken about true yeah. crime with on numerous occasions, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we are getting reached out to by people that we wouldn't necessarily A, know who listen or have known yeah. to talk about this kind of stuff with in the past. And yeah. it's just kind of getting little conversations going about stuff that we find really interesting. And also it's given us something to focus on during what was a really difficult time yeah absolutely like and i I, i'm sure this is stuff we have covered previously but considering the kind of decimation of our industry last year and there was that little bit of hope at the end of last year and then it just completely everything everything any for any and every form of work fell apart again at the end of the year which is why this is like this became like our kind of routine yeah, when everything totally. was shut. Yeah, Again, absolutely. There's so much that goes into it because there's your researching and then you're ed- like obviously writing up your notes and recording, editing. Um, we obviously run our social media accounts as well where we do some fun stuff. So it became it just it became like a job. Yeah, totally. Which is great. Totally. Because it's something that we both <clears throat> really love doing. So exactly. <laughs> it exactly. worked out for the best. It did. So. Yeah, we started it for one reason, and then the reason to maintain it and to keep it going are far more numerous than we expected. Story time! This week, this is something I've had on my mind for a while after I covered something in a previous episode. And then it felt particularly relevant because of something I did this week, 
which was to attend my first piece of live theatre since the world ended. I forgot to ask you about that because mm-hmm. I forgot it was a thing. <laughs> yes. So I attended Bard and the Botanic's production of The Twelfth Night, which is one of my favourite Shakespeare plays. And Absolutely. It was fantastic. They had so many things in place to make the running of the show really safe. You had your own little mm-hmm. square. So when you bought a ticket, you were by, you were purchasing the square. Yes. And so you, you had that. your own little designated area to sit within and they were marked off by little wooden squares like literal squares oh nice so nice so i went there with our pal tasha and Mm -hmm. the show itself was fantastic the actors were even socially distanced and they managed to handle love it doing the 12th night whilst entirely socially distanced they handled that perfectly it was so good and it was a slightly abbreviated version it was a one act hour and 40 minutes i think it was and it was mm-hmm. fantastic, it was so good, and it was so nice just to be seeing a show again. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in the past, I did the episode about Macbeth. And you did. There are some things connected to Shakespeare that I've always found quite interesting. So I thought, because I went to see the Twelfth Night this week, I would then cover mm-hmm. these things that have been on the back of my mind since Macbeth <laughs> happened. So Ooh. let us just begin. I'm not going to bore you with a load of detail about his life because I feel like a lot of people know quite a lot about Shakespeare. But I'll give you a brief synopsis and I will also kind of interject with things that I just found particularly interesting that I learned along the way. And then you'll see nice. where I'm going with this. So William Shakespeare is widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's greatest dramatist. He is often called England's national poet and the bard of Avon or simply the bard, hence bard in the botanics, because they do them in the botanic gardens. Shakespeare was born and raised in Stratford-upon-Avon with two siblings by his mother, Mary Arden, and father, John Shakespeare. The Shakespeare clan were neither rich nor poor. His dad, John, had a number of jobs, including selling leather and wool, tasting beer, and as a glove maker. And the family, all five of them, lived above the glove shop. Beer oh, taster as a career. That's brilliant. Wild. <laughs> he, would, he would just tell his wife, I'm a beer taster, by the way. But actually, he was just going on the slash. On the lash, rather, not the slash. Yes. It's a different thing. He'd go on the lash and then he'd have a slash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah, he just had a secret life as a, as a beer fan. I love that. It's a good excuse. Yeah, excellent. Take notes, kids. William went to school at a time when spelling was not a part of lessons and everybody would just spell words however the heck they wanted. Why not? Why not? This extended as far to him just spelling his name several different ways, just depending on the mood. I I would repeat these for you, but they all say Shakespeare, but they're just spelled differently. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Which brings me to a quick point about school as a McLeish. So we were taught in school at a time where I before E except after C was in the curriculum. Yes, it was still a And my name is spelt (laughs) M-C-L-E-I-S-H. So doesn't follow the rule of I before E. So you have to understand 
How confused I was growing up that my name didn't fit. So I spelt my name wrong on several occasions because I was trying to do what they taught me. Oh. I'm not having it anymore. They're having a crisis. <laughs> I just be like, I don't understand. I'm, what is my name and how is it spelled? I don't understand. So I can totally understand William's problem. I really can. I mean, fair. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. The McLeishes would have fared better in a time where you could just spell it however you wanted. That's fair. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, now that I've got that out of my system. <laughs> At the teeny tiny age of 18, he married Anne Hathaway, who would later go on to star as Fontaine in the Les Miserables musical. Uh, can we just not pass over her excellent role in Devil Wears Prada, please? Absolutely not. She was phenomenal. And she was how old? 430 at the time? She looked great. Yeah, she was looking great. She wore those Chanel boots just perfectly. There's not many people can wear Chanel when they're that age because their bones just snap. Absolutely. Absolutely. So she did well. Yeah. Uh, Together... Anne and Willie had three children, Susanna and twins, Hamnit and Judith. Now, on this podcast, we have already discussed in this very episode that this started during a pandemic. Fun fact, William himself lived through a pandemic. So he survived a a wave of the bubonic plague. Oh, that's a nasty one. Nasty one. And very sadly, although Willie and the rest of his fam survived, his son, Hamnet, did not, and he died at the age of 11. Yes. This event seemed to affect Will's writing, and he touched more upon themes such as disease, death, and grief. Mm-hmm. Although nobody can say for sure, many believe that the tortured Prince of Denmark himself, Hamlet, is named somewhat after his late son, Hamnet. And the death may well have influenced other things such as King John, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar and the Twelfth Knight. But let's move away from dead children, shall we? (laughs) Sometime between 1585 and 1592, Ur Willie began a career in London as an actor, which is a career path that his brother Edmund soon followed. Mm. I could not find much information on Edmund Shakespeare because when you type in Edmund Shakespeare, it just brings up a lot of quotes from King Lear because of the character Edmund. <laughs> but Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Is Edmund not a really bad person in King yes. Lear? Yes, 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 yes. I'm not sure if he drew upon <laughs> his experience of his own brother. I was going to say that. <laughs> but who knows? It was maybe Bit a homage. Uh, He's so a bad person. The only information I could find on Edmund Shakespeare was that while as an actor he had an affair with an unwon- unknown woman he fathered a son uh, who he named Edward Shakespeare and that child died, sadly. And Edmund then died in 1607 at the age of 27, which was just four months after the death of his son. Aww. 20 shillings was paid for his burial and it's believed that that was covered by William. So Will was doing pretty well, uh, so much so that in 1597, he bought the biggest house in Stratford-upon-Avon, which had maybe as many as 30 rooms. And he opened the very first Premier Inn. <laughs> That's not true. That's just a, <laughs> just some bants. How do you know? What, How this do is you true? know what a Premier Inn does not now sit on that site? This is true. Apart from the fact I think his house is still standing. There's that. Well, there might be a Premier Inn close by then. That's it. 
There's, an, there's a premier in just up the road. Stratford's a big tourist town. You're not wrong. <laughs> I've never been, be. but you're not wrong. <laughs> Six years later, the acting troupe for, that he formed called Lord Chamberlain's Men became the King's Men. Mm-hmm. And this was the official performing group for the new King, James I of England. A.K.A. Witch Poacher McGee, which is <laughs> our King James the Sixth. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, right, right. I'm now having like traumatic flashbacks to the second year of university when we had to, we did all this. And I remember talking about the King Chamberlain's men and all the all the um, stuff to do with censorship. And oh, all God, yeah. That. And I'm like, ah, it's fine because you're, t- you're teaching me. So it's fine. I'm not going to tell you anything about censorship. And I'll just throw in the occasional bit of joke just to try and lighten the old mood. I'm appreciative of it. Yes. Uh, so William, becoming uh, one of the king's men, officially yes. made it big, and his family were granted a special family crest, meaning he was now a gentleman. How nice. Yaldi made it. He stopped writing because of a disaster. <gasps> so theatres at this time were a new and exciting thing in Shakespeare's day. They were yeah. quite chaotic as well. They used very yeah. dangerous special effects. Examples of oh this dear. include throwing fireworks through a trapdoor in the ceiling to imitate lightning and rolling cannonballs across the roof to create the sound of thunder. I've got a f- fun fact that kind of links into one of our episodes about cannonballs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us. Do you know one of the last surviving mechanisms for that is actually present at Her Majesty's Theatre in London? Oh, that's yeah. fun. There, yeah, there was a whole, um, there was an actor whose name I can't remember, which is not helpful, but he did a series on Sky Arts that was all about West End theatres, and one of them was Her Majesty's, and they showed it working. Oh, it that's really cool. cool. Do they use it yeah. in shows? I don't think so, not anymore. Well, I'm, I don't think it's safe to use anymore. Yeah, true. But that's cool. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend chucking fireworks about stage. No, they're not safe. Just in general, be just in general s- sensible when you're thinking of using fireworks. Just save it for the display artists. Absolutely, they know what they're doing. And make sure that they're pre-planned so that the dogs and cats can get some pre-warning. Just a just a thought. Exactly, exactly. Now it wasn't a cannonball, but a cannon that was to blame for the globe burning down during a performance of Henry VIII in 1613. To announce that the play was starting, the cannons fired a mixture of gunpowder and wadding and the outer roofed area caught fire. Shakespeare stopped writing after this incident and died three years later. Potentially on his 52nd birthday. Because no one is sure when he was born, but he was baptised on the... Oh no, the 20... I've forgotten, 26th, I think, of April. I should know this because we did a post about him for his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I well, want to say it's something like that. Something yeah. like that. Because they think he was born on the 23rd because it was traditional that the baptism would happen three days after birth. So the baptism Indeed. is recorded, but the birth is not. But he died <clears> on the 23rd <throat> of April. Overall, he was a very productive man in his life. Shakespeare wrote at least 37 plays that we know of 
and the uh, and this averages out to be about two per year, which is a lot. He mustn't been doing much else. That that is a lot. <laughs> I mean, some of the avoiding epics, plagues, avoiding plague. That's it. See, he was stuck inside just like we are. We started a podcast. Absolutely. He wrote King Lear. He really, yeah, mm-hmm. nailed it. Nailing it. We're really on a par with him. Oh yes, <laughs> we Shakespeare and a wee bit gothic are really one and the same. <laughs> Peas in a pod. He also wrote oh. a lot of poetry, mostly poems called sonnets. I'm sure you're familiar. In one year Indeed. alone, 1609, he published 154 of them. His plays have been translated into every major living language and are performed more than any other playwright's work. Now, let's get on with the juicy gossip. So few <sighs> records of Shakespeare's private life survive and this has stimulated considerable speculation about such matters as his physical appearance, his sexuality, his religious beliefs, and whether the works attributed to him were actually written by other people. One of the best conspiracy theories of all time. Mm-hmm. So I won't touch upon the religious beliefs thing because I'm not interested. The only thing I did find... <laughs> Is that he, I think he was pretending to be a member of the Church of England, but actually was secretly Catholic. That was one thing I read. Um, I can imagine that being a common thing for the time. Yes. Yeah. They also think that he was a headmaster, I think, of a school. There was like record, or maybe not the headmaster, but he worked for a school uh, as a teacher. And the person who gave him the job or employed him was a known Catholic and so they had. There's the theory oh. that perhaps he was working for this guy because they were both Catholics. Anyway, that's all. I shall, that's that's all I shall say on the religious beliefs bit because the rest of it wasn't particularly interesting. Fair enough. So let's begin with his appearance. There are. I've already mentioned this in the Macbeth one, I think, briefly, but I'll go into a wee bit more detail mm-hmm. here. So there are only two portraits that definitively portray Will, both of which were done posthumously. One is the engraving named the Drowshout portrait, I think. It's D-R-O-E-S-H-O-U-T. And that appears on the title page of the first folio published in 1623. An introductory poem in the first folio by Ben Jonson implies that it was a pretty good likeness. The other is the sculpture that adorns his memorial in Stratford-upon-Avon, which dates from before 1623, and it is believed to have been commissioned by the poet's son-in-law, Dr John Hall. And so it's pretty safe to assume that perhaps Anne Hathaway, star Mm -hmm. of Brokeback Mountain, would have probably seen it. So if she didn't think that she liked it, she probably would have had a canary and smashed it to bits, but she didn't. So perhaps it's a good likeness too. Experts and critics have argued that several other paintings from the period may represent him, and more than 60 portraits purporting to be Shakespeare were offered for sale to the National Portrait Gallery within four decades of its foundation in 1856. But in none of them has Shakespeare's identity been proven. So it's still a little up in air as to what he looked like, although chances are that the pictures that we think of when we see when we think of Willie are uh-huh. not far off. Right, okay. Contrary to okay. what I said in the Macbeth episode. <laughs> I did more research <laughs> about it this time. Although I like to think he didn't look like that because when I've seen, like Shakespeare in Love, he's quite the hunk. 
Yes, quite dashing. Yes. Yeah. Whereas when you see Shakespeare with his strange kind of, it's not a comb over, it's a comb back with a it's kind a of bob. Back. A it's comb back bob. It's like, it's like a mullet without the front. Yeah, party in the back and nothing's going on in the front. Yeah, nothing's yeah. going on. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd rather that he was a hunky dunk just because that's a nicer... I mean, I'm not shaming. I'm not shaming anyone at all. I just think, in my no. mind, the Shakespeare in Love Shakespeare is much more appealing. <laughs> since we're here, since we're talking about portrayals of Shakespeare, do you know there's a Doctor Who episode about Shakespeare? Uh, no. No. So, season three, episode two. And do you know what? It has witches in it. Oh, and it's done in such a way you don't actually know there's aliens in it because you never see an alien. They just present as witches. <sighs> Thank God. So you might like it. It's all about his lost play. Okay. Interesting. Um, that's supposed to be the the sequel to Love Labour's Lost. What everyone thinks yeah. that there's a secret play. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should watch it. It's good. And he's quite he's quite dashing in that as well. Okay. So this they make before... comments about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They make comments about it about him not looking like his portraits. <laughs> okay, so let's now talk about the sexuality of Willie. Okay. It has been the subject of recurring debate for many years now. We know that he married Anne. We know that he had three wains. And, but some historians have speculated that Anne wasn't the only woman for him. Or perhaps not even just women, but the only person for him. He maybe had a twinkle in his eye for some other people too, of all sorts of genders. So literary historian and author Stephen Greenblatt argues that Shakespeare probably did initially love Anne Hathaway. Their marriage was hurried because she had fallen pregnant. So perhaps had the baby not been in the picture, they wouldn't have stayed together. Who's to say? Mm-hmm. And it only took three years of marriage before Shakespeare left his family and moved to London. Greenblatt suggests that this may imply that he felt trapped by Hathaway. Other evidence to support this belief is that he and Anne were buried in separate but adjoining graves. And it has often been noted that Shakespeare's will makes no specific bequest to his wife, aside from, quote, the second best bed with the furniture. Now, this may seem like a slight, but many historians suggest that the second best bed was typically the marital, the marital bed and the best bed was reserved for guests, which seems like a waste of a good bed to me because we <laughs> didn't have guests very often. <laughs> Just fair. Yeah. Uh, it should also be noted that the law at the time stated that a widow of a man was automatically entitled to a third of his estate. So Shakespeare wouldn't necessarily have to actually name his requests for Anne. Right, okay. Because she was going to get it, girl. She was going to get it. Wow, you mean she was actually going to get inheritance? Yeah, one third. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. A third. <laughs> um, so let's talk about potential affairs with other women. So while in London, Ooh. Shakespeare may well have had affairs with various women. One anecdote along the, these lines is provided by a lawyer named John Manningham who wrote in his diary that Shakespeare had a brief affair with a woman during a production of Richard III. Now, this next bit's a quote, and it doesn't make much sense, but I will, I have faith in you. It took me about four reads. Thank you. Okay. 
Upon a time when Burbage played Richard III, there was a citizen grew so far in liking him that before she went from the play, she appointed him to come that night unto her by the name of Richard III. Shakespeare, overhearing their conclusion, went before, was entertained, and at his game, ere Burbage came. Then, message being brought that Richard III was at the door, Shakespeare caused return to be made that William the Conqueror was before Richard III. Okay, so let's break this down real quick. Okay. Um, so Burbage referred to is Richard Burbage, who was a star of Shakespeare's company, who is known to have yes. played Richard III. What this is saying essentially is a woman really enjoyed Burbage, was like, come and see me tonight, pretend, call yourself Richard III. Shakespeare overheard okay. it and thought, I want to get in on this. So he went over and when when Burbage showed up, he was like, ha ha, William the Conqueror is here before you. And then he he got Are the you wo- telling me that Shakespeare used English monarchy history as a pickup line? I think he did. I think he did. Yeah. <laughs> or at least, at the very least, battle talk with the other potential suitor. What a oh guy. My God. What a player. Um <laughs> So while this is one of the few surviving contemporary anecdotes about Shakespeare, it should be noted that it was made in March 1602, which was a month after Manningham had seen the play. And so a lot of scholars uh, are a bit sceptical okay. about its validity. It wasn't, it was first hand, but it was delayed. <laughs> okay. Other possible evidence of other affairs are that 26 of his love sonnets made reference to a dark lady. And she is referenced with overtly sexual language. And it is believed that this is because she was forbidden fruit. A married woman. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the Dark Lady features quite a lot. And the theory is potentially this was a woman he was having an affair, if not multiple women. And there are lots of theories as to who this woman may well have been. Although I'm not going to talk about it. It's quite an interesting read. A lot of taken influential women that were or at least women who had influential husbands are kind of suspected it's always the way now let's move on to my area of interest shakespeare's possible attraction to men okay shakespeare's sonnets may hint at bisexuality okay the poems were initially published perhaps without his approval in 1609 126 of them appear to be love poems addressed to a young man known as the Fair Lord or Fair Youth. And this is often assumed to be the same person as the Mr. W.H. to whom the sonnets are dedicated. The identity of this figure is unclear, but a lot of people suggest it may be either Henry Riothsley, the third Earl of Southampton, and William Herbert, the third Earl of Pembroke, both of whom were considered hot, sexy slabs in their youth. Fair enough. And they were hot, sexy slabs with power. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> there's a theory here. Yes. The only explicit references to sexual acts or physical lust occur in the Dark Lady sonnets, which unambiguously state that the poet and the lady are lovers. However, there are numerous passages in the sonnets addressed to the Fair Lord that have been read as expressing desire for a younger man. 
In Sonnet 13, he is called Dear My Love. And Sonnet 15 announces that the poet is at war with time for love of you. Sonnet 18 asks, and this is familiar, but did you all know it was about a man? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. That is about a man, not a woman. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. Love it. What a secret. Oh, yes. And in Sonnet 20, the narrator calls the younger man the, quote, master mistress of my passion. Oh. Mm -hmm. The poems refer to sleepless nights, anguish and jealousy caused by the youth. The poems also seem to fixate on the beauty of the youth. In Sonnet 20, the narrator theorises that he was perhaps a woman with whom Mother Nature had fallen in love and to resolve the dilemma of lesbianism, added a willy. And I shall give you the quote. Ooh. Pricked thee out for women's pleasure, is the line. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, so, <laughs> yep. Oh, there's uh, not much metaphor going on there, really. <laughs> yes. Um, Quite obvious. In addition, the narrator descri that describes as to my purpose nothing. Okay, that was meant to be at the last sentence, so I'll just slice that on. The line okay. could be read literally as a denial of sexual interest. However, given the homoerotic tone of the rest of the sonnet, it could also be meant to be appear disingenuous, mimicking the common sentiment of would-be seducers. Quote, it's you I want, not your body. Mm-hmm. In Sonnet 20, the narrator tells the youth to sleep with women, but to love only him. Quote, mine be thy love, and thy loves use their treasure. Shakespeare's like, I fancy this boy, be mine. In kind of roundabout ways. <laughs> kind of. In some sonnets addressed to the youth, such as Sonnet 52, the erotic punning is particularly full on. Quote, so is the time that keeps you as my chest, or as the wardrobe which the robe doth hide, to make some special instant special blessed by new unfolding his imprisoned pride. Now, in Elizabethan times, okay. a pride was a euphemism for a willy. Okay. Ah, so the okay. So the imprisoned pride was a concealed willy. Right. Don't tell anyone. Oh. I'm learning so much today. Yes, Shakespeare loved to talk about willies. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That's why I call him Willie Shakespeare. You're such children. <laughs> Many oh argue that platonic relationships between men in Willie's day might have been more affectionate than we are used to in this, the age of toxic masculinity. Mm. Absolutely. <sighs> Others suggest that the narrator is not Shakespeare himself, but is actually the perspective of another, and he is merely the writer. In 1640, John Benson published a second edition of the sonnets in which he changed most of the pronouns from masculine to feminine so that readers would believe nearly all of the sonnets were addressed to the Dark Lady. Benson's modified version soon became the best-known text. So there, it may well be that most people don't know about the young youth, because it's actually been I, changed. Yeah. Editing his text doesn't sit well with me. Why did he edit the text? Why did he edit it? Well, exactly. Just I think so it appeared like he was talking to a woman. 
Potentially. I think that's probably oh. as simple as it was. Because at this time, um, homosexuality was a hanging offence. Yeah. So. Oh my God. Um, he probably wanted to conceal any misconstruement. That's probably not a word. Um, Mr. Shakespeare was a very clever man. He was so clever. Because that's literally hiding stuff yeah. in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight. Benson's modified version soon became the best-known text, and it wasn't until 1780 that Edward Malone republished the sonnets in their, in their original form. So for a good 140 years, people were only exposed to the female-centric version of the texts. Right, okay, yeah. Now, our friend Oscar Wilde himself addressed the issue of the dedicate of the sonnets. Dedicate, dedicate of the sonnets in his 1889 short story, The Portrait of Mr. W.H., in which he identifies Will Hughes as Mr. W.H., which was a boy in Shakespeare's acting troupe. Um, mm-hmm. And he theorised that Mr. W.H. and the fair youth were one and the same and that Will Hughes was that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in his plays, he doesn't portray homosexual relationships very clearly. The only one which is absolutely clear is the one between Patroclus and Achilles in Troilus and Cressida, which is based on the legend. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the other two most intimate male-to-male relationships is the plays, in the plays are between Antonio and Sebastian in Twelfth Night, because Antonio expresses love for Sebastian, talks about desire, mm-hmm. refers to uh, his desire being sharper than filed steel, which could be a euphemism. That's pretty sharp. That oh, could yeah. be a euphemism. Uh, and the other one is The Merchant of Venice, where the relationship between Antonio and Bassanio is a loving, close relationship, where Antonio shows himself willing to give his life for Bassanio. And that is often, although not explicitly in the text, it is often expressed mm-hmm. or interpreted as a homosexual thing. And I believe there are some quotes that are actually quite homosexual, kind of hinting at it. Because, Coded. Yeah. yeah, he says things like... Um, Antonio tells Bassanio to tell his wife that he loved Bassanio and that it's up to her to be the judge of his... I can't remember the exact quote, but essentially... Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And note, both are called... Both are called Antonio. That's a very good point. I think some people have theorised that he would write about homosexual relationships through the character of Antonio and Antonio was a representation of himself. Ah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. Please, you're playing a blinder this week. Hey, hey! now this is the juicy, juicy one. (gasps) The conspiracy that Shakespeare didn't write his plays at all exists in many circles, which leads to the question, Mm -hmm. who wrote Shakespeare's plays and sonnets? Anti-Strafordians, which is a collective term used for those who who thinks he didn't write them, believe that Shakespeare of Stratford was merely a front to cover up the identity of the real author or authors who for some reason most likely because of social rank state security or gender did not or could not accept any public credit shakespeare's authorship was first called into question in the middle of the 19th century when people really began to celebrate him as the greatest writer of all time shakespeare's humble origins and relatively obscure life seemed incompatible with this poetic eminence and his reputation for genius, arousing suspicion that Shakespeare may not have written the works at all. Anti-Strafordians often portray Stratford as a cultural backwater lacking the environment necessary to nurture such a genius and depict Shakespeare 
as nothing but illiterate and ignorant. Shakespeare's parents, this is true fact, this is not speculation. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's parents both signed their names with a mark and no other examples of their writing exists. Uh, and this is often used as an indication that Shakespeare grew up in an in an um, <laughs> grew up in an illiterate household. That is really hard. Well to done. Say. Thank you so much. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> there is also no evidence that either of Shakespeare's daughters were literate, save for two signatures by Susanna that appear to be drawn instead of written, and his other daughter Judith signed legal legal documents with just a mark. So they didn't know how to write their names. Whoa, okay, that's weird. And if your dad is Shakespeare, that is very strange. Anti-Strafordians consider that these marks and the rudimentary signature style, uh, they, they consider these bits of evidence of illiteracy and consider Shakespeare's plays, mm -hmm. which depict women across the social spectrum composing, reading or delivering letters, evidence that the author came from a more educated background. Yes. Anti-Strafordians consider Shakespeare's background incompatible with someone bearing knowledge of court politics and culture, foreign countries and aristocratic, and aristocratic, aristocratic sports, such as hunting, falconry, tennis and law bowling. Lawn bowling. Why okay. are you, why are you bow bowling laws? Antistrophordians also state that the evidence does not show Will to have been a writer in his life. There is some indication that he may have been a businessman and real estate investor, mm -hmm. and that the prominence he may have had within the London theatrical world was because of money lending, trading in theatrical properties, acting and being a shareholder. And any evidence that there is of him having a literary career is merely part of the cover-up for the true writer. Oh. Shakespeare died on the 23rd of April 1616 in Stratford leaving a signed will to direct the disposal of his large estate the language of the will is mundane and unpoetic and makes no mention of personal papers books poems or the 18 plays that remained unpublished at the time of his death mm -hmm. very bizarre very bizarre very very strange I'm suspicious of you Shakespeare <laughs> any public mourning of Shakespeare's death went unrecorded and no eulogies or poems memorialising his death were published until seven years later and the first one was on the front of the first folios of his plays the first folio of his plays yeah the controversy has since spawned a vast body of literature and more than 80 authorship candidates have been proposed so let's have a look at some of those lucky candidates Woo. Candidate number one, Sir Francis Bacon from 1561 to 1626. Sir Francis Bacon, the essayist, scientist and writer of New Atlantis, was the first alternative candidate proposed in 1856. There is little evidence to suggest this except some similarities in Shakespeare's plays to his own and the circumstantial fact that Bacon's grand tour took him to the location of several of Shakespeare's plays. Baconians have also argued that Shakespeare's works show a detailed scientific knowledge that they claim only Sir Francis Bacon would have possessed. Oh, And okay. this next one is crazy. And the fact someone spotted <gasps> this blows my mind. Sir, oh. since Bacon was knowledgeable about ciphers, early Baconians suspected that he left his signature encrypted within Shakespeare's plays. 
In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many Baconians claimed to have discovered ciphers throughout the works, supporting that Bacon was the true author. In 1881, C.F. Ashmead-Windle claimed she had found carefully worked out jingles in each play that identified Bacon as the author. This sparked a cipher craze and probative cryptograms were identified in the works by Ignatius Donnelly, Orville Ward Owen, Elizabeth Wells Gallup and Dr. Isaac Hull Platt. Platt argued that the Latin word honorificabilitudinitibus, it's a very long well word, found <laughs> in Love, Love's Labour's Lost, can be read as an anagram <gasps> yielding he ludi f bacchanis nati tuiti orbi, meaning these plays, the offspring of F. Bacon, are preserved for the world. <gasps> oh my god, that's like some Da Vinci Code nonsense going on there. Oh, Dan Brown, write the book. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. Oh my god. <gasps> Have we all been fooled for centuries? Centuries. But that's candidate number one. Oh my god. Candidate number two. Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, 1550 to 1604. So Edward de Vere the, so was a courtier poet. There is little strong evidence that suggests he wrote Shakespeare's plays, but some believe there are references in both the plays and sonnets to de Vere's life, as well as a series of codes in the writing that implicate the Earl as the author to those in the know. Mainstream scholars have described the methods of Oxfordians over the years as devoid of any individual value and subjective, suggesting double standards are used to consistently distort and misrepresent the historical record, sometimes even outright fabrication. So lots of people don't buy it. Okay. Perhaps the ultimate evidential objection to the Oxfordian theory is that de Vere died in 1604, and this was before lots of Shakespeare's plays were written. Mm -hmm. Oxfordians okay. think that the phrase our ever-living poet, which is an epithet that commonly eulogises deceased poets as having attained immort immortal literary fame, it was included in the dedication to Shakespeare's sonnets that were published in 1609. And that, okay. to them, suggests that the true poet was already dead at the time of publication. <gasps> Oxford oh. died in 1604, five years before the publication. And Shakespeare wasn't dead for another uh, seven years. So, okay. So, yeah, there was an epithet that is essentially, it's, it doesn't make sense for it to be on Shakespeare's things. No. Candidate number three, William Stanley, okay. the sixth Earl of Derby, 1561 to 1642. Derby's candidacy was first proposed in 1891 by the activist James H. Greenstreet, who identified a pair of 1599 letters which reported that Derby was unlikely to advance the Catholic cause because he was, quote, busy penning plays for the common players. Greenstreet further argued that the comic scenes in Love's Labour's Lost were influenced by a pageant of the Nine Worthies only ever performed in Darby's hometown of Chester. Darby was born three years before Shakespeare 
and died in 1642. So the lifespan fits the consensus dating of the works, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, his initials were WS. <gasps> and he was often known to sign himself as Will. Oh. Mm -hmm. Darby travelled as well in continental Europe in 1582, visiting France and possibly Navarre. I've, don't, I've never heard of this place. Apart from the fact that it's cool. in Love's Labour's Lost. So Love's Labour's Lost is in is set in Navarre, if that's how it's pronounced. Okay. And the play may be based on events that happened there while he was there. Oh. Darby married Elizabeth de Vere. Veer. I think I've changed how I pronounce his name just as I've gone on. But you know what? That's life. <laughs> um, her maternal grandfather was William Cecil, thought by some critics to be the basis of the character Polonius in Hamlet. Darby was associated with William Herbert, third Earl, third Earl of Pembroke, and his brother Philip Herbert, Earl of Montgomery, and later the fourth Earl of Pembroke. The incomparable pair to whom William Shakespeare's first folio is dedicated was Montgomery and Pembroke. Does that make sense? Okay. Yep. When Derby released his estates to his son James around 1628 to 1629, he named Pembroke and Montgomery as trustees. Okay, okay. So there's a link between the, the folio being published and the dedication. Yes. And also dedications that Der Darby, Der Darby made in himself. Yep. So does this mean that William Stanley may have been the greatest playwright in history? Who knows? <gasps> oh. No. A theory has been presented that perhaps Shaky Shaky was actually a woman. No, I'm on board with this one. Okay. So the intimate female friendships and relationships within the plays are a relatively fresh invention. They didn't exist at the time in literary sources from which many of the plays would have been in, like drawn. Mm -hmm. And when the mm -hmm. plays lean on historical sources, the writer of the plays feminized them portraying legendary male figures through the eyes of mothers, wives, and lovers. Quote, Ooh. Why was Shakespeare able to see the women's position write entirely as if he were a woman in a way that none of the other playwrights of the age were able to? The critic John Ruskin said, Shakespeare has no heroes. He has only heroines. A striking number of those heroines refuse to obey rules. So we have at least 10 who defy their fathers, Many refuse proposals and they decide they want to find love for themselves. Eight hide themselves in plain sight as men, trying to outwit patriarchal controls. And there are some mm -hmm. that lead armies. Oh. So one candidate is Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke, the sister of celebrated poet Philip Sidney. She was a translator and poet and is seen as one of the most educated women of her time. Sydney and her husband were also patrons of one of the first theatre companies that often showed Shakespeare's plays. There is a bit more detail in an article called Was Shakespeare a Woman? by Elizabeth Winkler. Okay. Uh, she also goes on to discuss another lady called Amelia Bassano. And it's, it's an Atlantic.com mm -hmm. article. Highly recommend reading it because she goes into a lot more detail. But that was... Okay. I found... The, the reasoning behind thinking it was a woman more interesting than the actual theory of who who did it yeah so yeah, 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 yeah. But i recommend it it's, it's good kind of future reading for anyone fascinating yes and finally 
What about Christopher Marlowe? Oh, yes. Yes. Some historians believe that Marlowe, who was a brilliant scholar, poet and playwright in his own right, worked as a spy for the Queen and got involved in a political skirmish for which he was going to be put on trial before being stabbed in the eye with a fork in a bar fight and dying. That was in 1593, right at the very, very start of William Shakespeare's career. So what if Marlowe had not actually been killed and his stabbing was merely a cover-up to protect the spy ring of which he was involved? Marlowe had to keep writing, obviously, though so uh, from his hiding place, he wrote his plays abroad, no one knows where, and put the name of William Mm -hmm. Shakespeare on them to protect his identity. One criticism of this theory has never been answered, which is that if Marlowe wrote those plays and became so famous, why did he never come out of hiding and go, okay, I'm still alive, Mm -hmm. surprise. And nobody ever saw him hiding. So Mm -hmm. there are reasons to doubt that that happened. But I remember Mm -hmm. hearing that theory when I was about 20 and I was like, fascinating. Because they have a similar writing style. They do. They're contemporaries. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's It's very much of the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could see it being... A possibility that he absolutely he, he didn't yeah. actually die and he lived vicariously through William Shakespeare. Um, so I'm so trying to think stabbed of... in the eye with a fork. Yes, grim, grim. Do you think that made it? Do you think that ever made it on to horrible history, stupid deaths list? Oh, probably. I probably if we looked. I know that it's up, quite a violent death, but it's they liked the occasional what, violent death. What are the chances? Yeah, I could see it happening. Um, one of the other things is that earlier on I mentioned the there was a guy that said that the likeness, the sketch at the mm-hmm. etching of Shakespeare was a good likeness. That same mm-hmm. man is thought to have been one of the people who helped cover up Christopher Marlowe's death or cover oh. up like that he'd gone into hiding. And so if that is a conspiracy, if that is a part of the conspiracy, then yeah. it makes sense that he he was kind of employed to partake in the cover-up and so would <gasps> oh, would say things in support of the William Shakespeare that we think we know. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's very fascinating. Um, okay, the final leg. So other theories include Princess Diaries star Anne Hathaway as the writer. Classic. Queen Elizabeth, the OG. Numero uno. The OG. She may well have been the writer. And there's also, and I couldn't find much information on this, but it is, she is listed as one of the suspected penners of the plays. Our friend of the podcast, Mary Queen of Scots. Are you kidding me? She is one of the 80 odd uh, proposed <gasps> candidates. Why? No idea, because I could <laughs> not find anything. She had nothing else thing. to do in isolation. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, although wow. I'm sure she was dead by the time lots of the plays were written. Maybe. When did she die? 1570-something? Yes. And Shakespeare continued to write until 1613, I think. Okay. Also, um, there is the theory that it w- that Shakespeare is not one person. So Shakespeare could actually be a collection of all these people. And Shakespeare was just oh, the I name used to that. cover up. That would be yeah. so cool. That would be like the greatest like theatrical circle that ever did exist mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be so cool so good so just before we go 
William was very good with his insults, and I Great. thought I would give you some of my favourites. So I'm here for it. First of all, you scullion, you rampalian, you fustilarian, I'll tickle your catastrophe. That's a good one. <gasps> po- poetry. Uh, next, thou art as fat as butter. <laughs> that sounds like kind of your mama saw like those horrible jokes from the nineties. <laughs> yeah. um, that's like the Shakespeare equivalent. <laughs> And yeah. finally, one that feels very relevant to the, the heat we are currently living in. Thine face is not worth sunburning. Oh. Yeah. Burn. Brutal. Literally. Literally. Literal burn. <laughs> and so let us just wrap this up by saying some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And that is the conspiracy theories surrounding Shakespeare. <gasps> So good, McLeish. That was such a good one. Thank Half of those you. I didn't even know existed. I knew about the authorship conspiracy. Yeah. Because there's a film about it that I've watched. Yes. <laughs> but I didn't know all the other ones. That's really Woo! fascinating. Yeah. Oh. I just, I, I so mean, good. I do love the idea that Shakespeare was one person and he was just a genius. But when you actually break down yeah. some of the reasons people have these theories, you are kind of like, how could he write so eloquently and poetically when he came from a completely uneducated family and brought yeah. up two relatively uneducated daughters? In terms of yeah, in terms of their does. writing skills, their literary skills, yeah. literacy yeah. rather, is it is very very intriguing when you I kind of add it up. Yeah, because who whomever wrote them, be it Shakespeare or another party, they were a genius. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I, oh, the authorship question is so fascinating. I love it. I could literally just sit and talk about it for hours. Cause Me too. <laughs> it's so, so interesting. interesting. And we've, um, I'm, I thought I would just round it off by giving you one of my favourite quotes from The Twelfth Night, which actually seems to sum up whoever this Shakespeare was. Yeah. Seems to sum him up. So thank you, Bard and the Botanics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for <laughs> Provided good inspiration this, week. this yeah. week. No, it's so true because he was just a bit like an anomaly. If it mm-hmm. was him. Yeah, totally. He could just like, uh, this was all in his head and it just had to be written down. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So cool. So good. So good. Anyways, there so you good. are. Thank you so much for listening. <gasps> so good, McLeish. I'm fully going to have to go and go down a Google hole about the authorship question after this now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Honestly, recommend that article. Was Shakespeare a woman? Yeah, fully going to read that because that's fascinating stuff. Because actually when you point it out, majority of his female characters are pretty badass yeah and they're just written from a perspective of someone who understands the intricacies of female relationships and friendships yeah absolutely because if you look at quite a lot of the theatrical female characters of that era they all are kind of at the mercy of men yeah. <laughs> 98.8% of the time yeah so but actually a lot of his have a lot of agency yeah, absolutely. And the understanding of the world. Which also feeds into the theory that if Shakespeare was the person who wrote these things, that he he loved, I think he loved his wife. I think he loved his mum. Yeah. I think he had to have grown up with a real respect for women and a real love for women. Yeah. To want to represent absolutely. them in such a way. So I don't know mm-hmm. how I feel about the theory that he slept around or that he didn't want to be with Anne. Yeah. Because she has an Oscar. You need to, she's worth sticking about. You need to respect that. You need to respect the golden statue. You do. 
I'm also proud of how many Anne Hathaway films you were able to drop into that without hesitation. You're so welcome. I that story. I feel like I'm more of a fan Seamless. than I give myself credit for. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Shall we just dive on in then? Dive on in. Number two. Number and two. Actually, I want it clean off. It has a kind of literary theme as well. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just dive on in this week. So. Washington Irving is born on the 3rd of April, 1783, to parents William Irving Sr., originally from Orkney in Scotland. hey Hey! So the Irvings are actually descended from William de Irwin, who was the secretary and armour-bearer to big old Robert the Bruce. Robbie! And his mother, who is originally from Cornwall, is called Sarah Sanders. Mmm! That is so close! Well, because yet yeah, one could say that Irving was Sarah Sanders' son. Hey! I love that. <laughs> Sarah Sanderson, she's a queen for all ages. I love her. Ah, uh, what a gal. So, Washington is the youngest of 11 children, only eight of whom survive into adulthood. The family settled in Manhattan and were part of the city's merchant class. So, they were hmm. pretty well to do. Well, to do. For the time. Unsurprisingly, Irving's namesake, namesake is indeed that of George Washington, first president of the United States. And there is a story that Irving met Washington after his inaugura- inauguration in 1789, when the former was only six years old. Oh, but I mean. Yes. So Irving was something of a theatre fan and would often miss classes and sneak out the house in order to attend performances. Which I love. I approve. Absolutely fair. Approve of this behaviour. Um, and he also expresses an interest in writing. In 1798, an outbreak of yellow fever leads Irving's parents to send him to stay with a friend in Tariton, New York. It is during his time here, Irving becomes familiar with the neighbouring town, which is literally just down the road. It's a sleepy little place nestled in what one could call a hollow. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) I get where you're going. You get where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. So, given Irving's somewhat surprising Scottish roots, he embarks on a European tour when in his early 30s. As far as I could find out. (laughs) I I had to literally just try and subtract the dates from each other, and I think he was in his early 30s when he did this. Okay. So he does indeed travel back to his ancestral homeland with a letter of introduction in his hand. He's on his way to meet one of his idols. Irving turns up on the doorstep of Scottish writer Sir Walter Scott. hi Yeah, who has also featured in this podcast. Handing over the letter of introduction, Scott greets him warmly, inviting his American visitor in for breakfast, introducing him to his daughters, and insists that they spend some time together. Very nice. What a host. Is that like olden days Tinder? (laughs) Olden days Tinder? Here, just sit with my daughter. Yeah. So, Scott himself was a mutual admirer of Irving's work, and he was a fan of his history of New York. He shows Irving the surrounding local landscapes, and it's believed that the, spe- the men spent three or four days together in each other's company. Hmm. 
Yeah, I found this little story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I found this little story on like a history website about apparently the two men got caught in a rainstorm whilst out walking one day, and they shared a blanket. Oh, that's so <laughs> sexy. Thank you. How cute is that? I know. That's right? really cute. <laughs> That's up there Aww. with your Tchaikovsky and Sant song. <laughs> I love an olden Chat. days homosexual story conspiracy. I love it. It's great. We are all about this on this podcast. Let's we go next year. So at this point, Scott had enjoyed a certain degree of fame as a romantic poet, with works such as The Lady of the Lake and The Lord of the Isles having been published in the preceding years. The latter is actually about Robert the Bruce's return from exile, which is quite apt, considering Irving's ancestors would have known the Scottish king personally. Just best pals. Best pals. Love that. Best pals. So Scott had just received critical acclaim for his first novel, Waverley, which was published in 1814. It is said he showed his new pal Irving the final drafts of Rob Roy, which was due to be published in that same year. It's nice. great, I love this. So Irving describes his time with Scott as, quote, among the most delightful of my life, and thought of Scott as having taken him under his wing. The Scottish author encouraged him to keep writing, and that he did. So from quite a lot of the accounts and reports that I read on their friendship is that they did remain, like, really close, lifelong friends, and that Scott was something of a mentor to the young Irving. So cute. So I would... It just makes my heart so happy. It's also weird when, like, famous. It turns out famous people actually know each other. I just find it strange. <laughs> yeah, I, it's also sometimes when you actually hear personal stories like that of a historical figure, you're kind of like, oh, they were real. They weren't just a statue that lives in Princess Street. Absolutely. See, that's the thing. These people had lives and had all these little hidden histories. In no way did I think that Sir Walter Scott had any connection with Washington Irving. I didn't even yeah. know they were alive at the same time. Yeah, totally, <laughs> like, totally. I mean? It's that's so like, cool. That's how I felt when I found out about Sanson and Tchaikovsky. I was like... Yeah. Oh, never good, didn't know that they were one. so easily going to be crossing paths. Yeah. I know what you mean. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. So, serialised from 1819 to 1820, Irving's The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon Gent is published, and it's often commonly referred to as simply The Sketchbook. It is in the March 1820 edition. Does a little story pop up, believed to have been written by Irving while staying in Birmingham, featuring a superstitious schoolmaster and a phantom Hessian soldier, the legend of Sleepy Hollow is released into the world with the clattering of hooves, swinging of swords, and the thump of decapitated heads. Yeah, so this blew my mind because I was like, oh, because I love sleep. I find the Sleepy Hollow story fascinating. Me too. And yeah, I just, I just love it. So I did, I was like, I'm really going to have to break the rules of this podcast because there's nothing remotely Scottish <laughs> about it. But then I did a Google search and I found a thing about Scott and Irving, and I was like, why the hell was Washington Irving, who has the most American name in existence, yeah. knocking about Scotland, Googled it, his dad was bloody Scottish. He was half That's Scottish. so good. It was so weird. <laughs> That's another reason why I love doing this. You discover these people who actually are connected to this land. Yeah, totally. Crazy. So cool. Crazy. So let's take a fleeting look at Irving's original story, as most likely people will be more familiar with the various adaptations of the source material 
more on that in a bit. So Sleepy Hollow was originally a Dutch settlement, and according to the narrator, it is also renowned for being extremely haunted. Amongst the most famous of the local ghosts is that of the Headless Horseman, believed to be the vengeful spirit of a Hessian soldier whose head was taken off by a rogue cannonball during a nameless battle in the American Revolution. Which would have been a relatively recent history for Irving, if you think about it, because that was True. like the latter end of the 1700s. Yeah. Ish, kind of. So we are introduced to Mr. Ichabod Crane, the local schoolmaster with a rather unconventional appearance. Tall but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. And that is a quote from the story. I feel the, slightly attacked. In the nicest way possible chris it sounds a bit like you <laughs> i can say like i feel i feel seen it just means you'd be the perfect ichabod crane should they ever adapt this <sighs> come on Again. tim burton do it do sleepy hollow too exactly you would fit in perfectly you kidding yeah so he goes from house to house seeking the locals hospitality many of whom greet him warmly and they exchange stories ranging from town gossip to local folk tales and superstitions Ichabod Crane himself is a very superstitious man. He is enamoured with Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter of a wealthy farmer, Baltus, but there is another with his sights set on Katrina, as is always the way. Abraham Brombones Van Brunt. At a party, Ichabod seeks an audience with Katrina in private, where he ultimately leaves de dejected. It is left ambiguous as to whether his proposal was rejected or whether he worked up the courage to ask at all. So he just kind of abruptly leaves unhappily. Mm. Whilst riding home, he comes face to face, albeit not quite literally in this case, with the headless horseman where a chase ensues. Crossing a bridge at the Dutch burial ground, the horseman is unable to follow as the laws of superstition dictate. Instead, he uses the closest weapon to hand, launching his head at the terrified schoolmaster, knocking him clean from his horse. Sometime after all that can be discovered of Ichabod Crane is that of his crushed hat and saddle from his horse and a smashed pumpkin. Local legend states that Ichabod Crane was spirited away by the headless horseman that night, but there might just be a different cause behind the disappearance, one mm -hmm. of the human kind. In the end, Katrina marries Brom, who acts a little too entertained whenever Crane's disappearance is spoken of in his presence. It is left as a suggestion that Brom had disguised himself as the horseman, playing on Crane's fears and chasing his love rival from the town. Or perhaps he went one step further and dispatched poor Ichabod Crane from this world entirely. Yes. Oh, I don't know. How, I didn't realise that's how the story went, not in the film. <laughs> Yes, no, I will get to that oh. in a little bit, but the film it widely sort of extrapolates what the original story is. Yeah. <laughs> I think Very most people are probably familiar with that. But actually, it does take... There is quite a lot of similarities in the film, such as names and events yeah. uh, that do pop up. So, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow undoubtedly had a part to play in the popularising of the Headless Horseman myth. But did you know that it's believed tales of such a spirit date back as far as the Middle Ages? Ooh. Yes. 
It is present in the mythologies of both mainland Europe, particularly in countries such as Germany and in Celtic mythology. Hey, oh, I'm familiar. Fact, yeah. Scotland has its own version of the Headless Horseman tale. We do? We do! Honestly, see what Google can tell you, honestly. I don't know this. <laughs> the story of Ewan the Headless is attributed to the clan MacLean, concerning a clan battle on the Isle of Mull. The story goes that Ewan had his head removed during the fight and that he and his horse continue to roam this world, making an appearance whenever a member of the clan dies, he riding through the hills and glens to harvest the souls from the clan. That's a nice headless yes. man. That's a nice headless man. Yeah. Really? Harvesting souls? Wait, so he's not collecting them to look after them? Oh, no. Oh. Like, you don't want to hear the headless horseman coming at you. Because <laughs> it oh. means one thing. <laughs> I've misinterpreted. <laughs> if I was a McLean, I'd be like, a horse? Hello? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> No, so the story kind of goes that he was told a prophecy by a, it's a washerwoman and washerwoman in the story, who historically were sort of deemed to be seers and people who could tell the future, and the story goes he didn't like what he heard and he was extremely arrogant the next morning and him and his clan rode off on into battle without breakfast, hence the defeat. So it's very interesting. I wasn't going to write the whole thing down because it's quite long. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite okay. long. Um, there is also a story of a headless horseman attributed to the House of Dunn, which is a Georgian house designed by William Adam in Montrose. So there's a couple of them knocking about in Scotland. Yeah. So Irish mythology has its own version of the horseman, which, what I've written down, is called the Dullahan, which is something of a grim reaper-style spirit. It rides on a black horse with its head in its hand, uses a human spine as a whip, lights its way using funeral candles, and the spokes of its wagons, its wagon wheels are made from human thigh bones. Pretty dark. Mm. Pretty dark. Also, quick question. <laughs> what makes a candle a funeral candle? That's a good point. Are they black, Maybe. 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 The mythology goes that once he stops riding, a person will die, but have no fear, as it is said that he can actually be cast away with golden objects. Okay, so you're okay if you're rich? You're all right if you're rich, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you've got a wee gold chain on you, you're fine. All right. So, what are some of the things that inspired Irving to write his spooky tale? Well, Walter Scott, unsurprisingly, is one of them. His poem, The Chase, published in 1796, nothing to do with the ITV game show programme, <laughs> was a translation of the German poem, The Wild Huntsman, which is a work based on Norse mythology. By many accounts that I actually did find online, Scott's translation of the poem wasn't exactly the best. Okay. Mm -hmm. So quite a lot of critics have said it's not, it's not great. Okay. Um, however, Scott was fascinated with German works and encouraged Irving to learn the language so he could also read them. Um, famously, Scott went on to be a pioneer in the genres of Scottish Gothic and Scottish Romanticism, which are kind of interlinked in many ways. Irving's work, be that either coincidentally or intentionally, does, share, does indeed share similarities to Robert Burns' Tam O'Shanter, 
and see episode 35 for all the deets on that work. Mm-hmm. Major plot points shared by the two is an escape on horseback from supernatural forces and the crossing of a bridge to get to safety. So everybody really did believe this crossing a bridge stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like common like superstition that's not just here, evidently. Mm. Um, there's also every possibility that the Headless Horseman might have been based on a real person. After the Battle of White Plains in 1776, there was effectively an area of no man's land left in the surrounding area. It is recorded that Hessian Jaegers, which were highly skilled horsemen and sharpshooters, would often clash with the Patriot forces that were close by. A Hessian soldier, his head having been removed from his shoulders, was discovered on Sleepy Hollow land, and he was buried in an unmarked grave by the Van Tassel family. Ooh. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, university professor Franz Potter said of the presence of the Headless Horseman in the tale, and I quote, The Headless Horseman supposedly seeks revenge and a head which he thinks was unfairly taken from him. This injustice means that he continually searches for a substitute. The Horseman, like the past, still seeks answers, still seeks retribution and can't rest. We are haunted by the past which stalks us so that we will never forget it. Very good quote. Very true quote. It is very true. That's like... Very, um, yeah. It rings true of the line I said at the end of the story last week where the... Mm. With the superintendent women. Yeah. I'd say what the quote was but I can't remember it now. It's probably... I think it was... Yeah, essentially that it will come back. Yeah, to, it haunt you. To haunt you, effectively. So, by the time this story is published, the American Revolutionary War had only finished 37 years ago. Irving's family had been directly affected by the war, and he would have been growing up in its aftermath, which kind of ties into that quote that he was very much aware of, like, the political, mm-hmm. well, climate of the time, and what that all meant. It's also widely believed Irving didn't pluck his hero's name out of thin air, instead acquiring it from a real person. The real Ichabod Crane, born 1787 and died 1857, was born in New Jersey and had served in the American military for 48 years. He reached the rank of colonel and it is said that he and Irving did cross paths in 1814. Hmm. Yes. Although I can't, the Ichabod Crane that I'm familiar with, I cannot imagine him serving any kind of military service. Uh, No. No. no, I don't think he's of that disposition, to be perfectly no. honest. No. 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 So the legend of Sleepy Hollow has inspired many adaptations throughout the years. The earliest in 1922 was silent film The Headless Horseman, directed by Edward Venturini. The film actually used double exposure in an early attempt at special effects, giving the horseman a ghostly appearance. People are so clever. People are clever. Honestly. Yeah. Like, I don't give people that's... enough credit. <laughs> Just all people? <laughs> Everyone. Every single one. I really need Everyone. to start being more open-minded. Um, so there is also, somewhat bizarrely, a version released by Disney in 1949. Oh, I think I've seen that. I think I have seen that, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So part of what was known as a package film, which was generally shorter length works that literally came together as one, 
and it was called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Alongside the telling of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was an adaptation of Kenneth Graham novel The Wind in the Willows. Um, and singer-actor Bing Crosby provided the voice for the narrator Ichabod Crane and Brom. There you go. Good old Bing. <laughs> Bing bong. I wonder if he did drugs. <laughs> Where did I come from? Because Bing and bong. what basis do you have? Bing if, if, Bing, <laughs> if Bing Crosby had a bong. Bing bong. <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. He's dreaming so of a white Christmas. Oh, he is indeed. He is indeed. <laughs> So, despite it being a lesser-known work within the wider Disney canon, The Headless Horseman has previously made appearances as a character in the Halloween celebrations at Walt Disney World Florida and at Disneyland in California. And it's very cool. They do it very effectively. Just saying. Um... Of course, however, it's probably safe to presume many people are most familiar with 1999 film Sleepy Hollow, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp as Ichabod Crane. So this adaptation retains many elements from Irving's original tale, but does ultimately stray from the source material. The film's plot centering around Crane, his occupation changed to that of New York police constable, being sent to Sleepy Hollow in order to investigate a spate of beheadings. Crane is depicted as having an interest in quote-unquote modern (laughs) turn-of-the-century forensics, and the plot focuses around a town conspiracy. Quite actually, see, when I was like doing the reading about the original story and stuff like that, there are quite a lot of elements taken from the original tale. It just like sort of fills out to be something yeah. slightly more yeah meaty if you like because all the names are largely still the same there is a point where brom chases down ichabod mm-hmm. dressed as the horseman which is kind of the derrymont of the original story so actually yeah. there's quite a lot in there that the names are so is directly lifted uh, the names, names are, are so good so good and because everyone loves a useless film fact, here's a couple from Sleepy Hollow. Now, you may already know these because we did Sleepy Hollow during our Gothic Film Club. Yes. <laughs> and I was on Fun Fact Duty that night. <laughs> so, yes, friends, we used to text each other fun facts about the film as we were watching. But that's okay because there's probably lots of people that weren't in the club that haven't. True. Heard. I mean, there was only three of us. It was a very small club. Exactly. So, due to a blue filter being placed on the camera in order to give the film a bleak, monochromatic look, the blood used, and safe to say there's lots of it, was actually coloured bright orange on set in order to look red on camera. Mm-hmm. Or- orange-coloured blood is actually a trope attributed to the early Hammer horror films, which is one of the inspirations cited for this film. Nice. Which is very cool. Yeah. And two legends of Hammer Horror do actually turn up in Sleepy Hollow. You have a cameo by Christopher Lee at the very, very beginning. And Michael Goff, who plays the notary, was mm. a big, big, very famous British character actor that featured in a lot of Hammer's work. Yeah. Which is very, very cool. 
Sleepy Hollow is also one of a select handful of horror films where a child is indeed killed. Yeah. So, sent to murder the Killian family, the horseman also kills their young son, albeit implied rather than explicitly depicted on screen. But you do not see that child again after you don't. the scene. The headless horseman grabs the child from under the floorboards and then the next shot is him stuffing something into a, his little hessian yeah, sack. Yeah, exactly. So he definitely... comes out with his little handbag of heads and mm-hmm. you can see him putting something in and yeah. put two and two together. That child does not come out alive. No. So actually, it's in a very rare little club because that doesn't often happen because generally children get away because they are innocents. And it's refreshing. It's refreshing, really. It's refreshing. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Lastly, Christopher Walken played, uh, portrayed the headless horseman with head in the film mm-hmm. in what is effectively a non-speaking role. He kind of grunts and makes shouty noises, but he doesn't actually say anything. Um, all stunt work done by the horseman without his head was performed by Ray Park and his head was digitally edited out post-production. And actually, for 1999 technology, it still looks fantastic. Yeah, Like, when you watch really it again. Does. So effective, because they did it because they didn't want to do the old thing of having him in a costume that covered his head so the proportions were wrong. Yeah. So instead, they just <clears throat> took his head out digitally. Love that. There you go. Movie magic. And in what seems like a beautiful way to round off this story, Ray Park, the headless horseman in Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, is in fact Scottish. Yay! So the headless horseman in the film is literally Scottish. Bringing it back. (laughs) I love that. And that's Washington Irving and the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Lovely. I... Lo- I'm more familiar with the film than anything, but I love the film. The film is great. The film is an absolute classic. It's so well made. Yeah. So well performed. Oh, it's so oh, it's just brilliant. I love it. I could watch it multiple times and never get bored. Oh, so good. And Christina Ricci and of course Miranda Richardson. Oh, the queen both... herself. The line where they're walking into the windmill and she goes, um, they say like watch your head or something as they're going something in. Like that that yeah. was improvised. What a gal. Oh, she's such a oh my god, I love her so much. She's so brilliant. And she's particularly brilliant in that film. Yeah. She's so good. Um but yeah, I just it completely blew my mind that actually Washington Irving was is of Scottish, Scottish ancestry. Yeah. <laughs> bizarre it's just wild but then again that's the beauty of this project is that you find out things like that yeah that you didn't i had no no suspicion that he was connected to this country in any way shape or form yeah but no indeed was technically a scot himself in a way even though he, he was american but was a Scot himself and was big pals with one of our greatest writers. Yeah. Walter and shared Scott. a blanket with him. <laughs> the romance. It's too real. <laughs> Somebody too write real. that story, please. Please. I would love to see it. Thanks very much. What yeah. a nice little literary episode. I know. Inad- completely inadvertently. As always. 
as always please pop along to our instagram and our facebook give us likes and follows there we post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story along with our magic hat mondays where you can give your responses to our questions our we love a link wednesdays where we join links between different stories that we've told and of course fun fact friday where you will learn some kind of fun scottish fact if you happen to have a question for the magical hat if you either email us or messages it over it will be written down on a little sheet of paper folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes also if you happen to own an apple device if you could head on over to that little purple logo of apple podcasts and leave us a little review it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world and thank you for listening to a wee bit gothic Was that gothic? A wee bit. (laughs) I dropped a blueberry. Oh. Well, that's gone forever.